Hi, everyone. This is Kea Perowit, one of the producers of the Doctor's Pharmacy podcast. Dr. Hyman was recently interviewed by his friend Chris Kresser, and like always, these two had a great conversation, so we wanted to share it with you. They talk about chronic disease, the food system, and so much more. Hope you enjoy it. Hey, everybody. Chris Kresser here. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. This week, I'm really excited to welcome my good friend and colleague, Dr. Mark Hyman, as a guest. Dr. Hyman's a practicing family physician and internationally recognized leader, speaker, educator, and advocate in the field of functional medicine. He's the founder and director of the Ultra Wellness Center, the head of strategy and innovation of the Cleveland Clinic Center for Functional Medicine, a 12-time New York Times bestselling author, and board president for clinical affairs for the Institute for Functional Medicine. He's the host of one of the leading health podcasts, The Doctor's Pharmacy, and he's a regular contributor to several television shows and networks, including CBS This Morning, Today, Good Morning America, The View, and CNN. He's also an advisor and guest co-host on The Dr. Oz Show. If you've been following functional medicine for any length of time, I'm sure you know about Dr. Mark Hyman. He is really um, one of the modern pioneers of this movement and perhaps more responsible for advancing functional medicine uh, as a concept and as a practice than any other person in the world. Today, we're going to be talking about his new book, Food Fix, which I believe is one of the most important books that's been written in this century. That may seem a little hyperbolic, but I think you'll agree with me uh, by the end of this podcast. Food Fix really focuses on the systemic problems in our food system and how they contribute to the chronic disease epidemic. And I've often said before that health is not just an individual endeavor. We really have to address the systemic problems that contribute to ill health, and that's really what Mark's new book, Food Fix, is about. So without further ado, let's dive in. Mark Hyman, my friend, it's such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. Uh, this is an important subject we got to talk about. This is what we both care so much about, and I'm so excited to share this with you and your, your community. Yes. As I said in the intro, I think this is... Um, possibly one of the most important books that has been written and will be written in this century. I know that may sound hyperbolic for some people, but given the scale of the challenge we're facing, and I'm, I know you saw this, this study published last week, Mark, saying, predicting now that one in two Americans will be obese by the year 2030 and one in four will be severely obese, which is a whole new category we've had to create. Um, so this is really like an existential threat that we're facing on the same level of climate change and uh, other things that seriously uh, threaten the future of humanity. And as you and I have both talked about before, health is not just an individual choice or an individual endeavor. It's really a, a, a society-wide effort that we need to make. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that. I know you, you, you mentioned in the book that diet is now the number one cause of death in the world. So maybe we could start there. Yeah, well, thanks, Chris. I, I think that what you said was really important, which is it's, it's about disease, but you mentioned sort of on the scale of things like climate change. But what really was clear to me after working on this book and practicing medicine for 30 years was that everything is connected, that our food system as a whole is probably the biggest driver of most of our global crises. Obviously, chronic disease, we'll get into that. The economic burden of it, we talked about, you know, how in the book, uh, one out of two Medicare, one, one out of two federal dollars will be for Medicare within five years. And that's a crazy wow. number to think about it. Uh, and it's getting worse. 
Uh, it's the number one driver of climate change, environmental degradation, loss of our soil, our water resources, biodiversity. It's the biggest driver of social injustice. It's a huge contributor to poverty and violence and mental health issues, not to mention kids' poor academic performance, national security. So this is really one issue that if we pull on the thread, we see how it's all connected. And the good news is by working on fixing the food system, we can solve all these problems. That's really critical point. I don't think many people really consider that when they're making choices about food, that it's it's not just a question of nutrition. I mean, we of course, everyone's familiar with all the debates about which diet is best, low carb, low fat, you know, plant-based, paleo, vegan, et cetera. Uh, but we often don't think of the fact that our food choices are also political, social, and economic and environmental acts. You know, it's, it's not just about what we eat from a nutritional perspective. Every time we put something into our mouth, we're essentially making a vote on all of these uh, global issues that we're facing. It's so true. And I think, I think that is, it's both a terrifying thought and a very empowering thought because if mm-hmm. we actually uh, understand the impact of our choices and our behaviors, and we also understand the linkages to what's going on in our policies, then it's a very empowering thought. You know, wait a minute, I can, I can be part of the solution. And I also realize that it has to happen on a bigger scale. And I think, so the book really lays out not just, it's not called Food Apocalypse, which it could easily have been called, <laughs> but it's called Food Fix, which maps out the solutions for citizens, businesses, and policymakers to fix the problem. And it's going to require a, a significant level of awareness so people really understand these problems and linkages, because I don't think most, for example, policymakers do. I, I for example, spent uh, two hours on a, a boat this summer with a uh, United States senator, and uh, he was a very you know, open, interested guy, and he was really unaware of these linkages, unaware of these connections. And mm-hmm. you know, I was sort of struck by that. I was like, wait a minute, the guys who are making our policy are not aware that these are the issues that we have to face, and they're all dealing with them in silos, it's a problem. It's sort of like functional medicine for the food system as opposed to all these separate different issues. It's really one issue. If you get to the root cause, you can really solve them. Right. Yeah, that's why I'm so excited about this book because I think a lot of people aren't aware. It's just not on their radar. It's not something they're thinking about. And so this book and then the campaign that's associated with it, which I want to talk about a little later, I think is really going to help bring this forward into people's awareness and make it as big of an issue uh, in terms of the public consciousness as it really deserves to be and needs to be if we're going to address these challenges we're facing. I mean, l- let's talk a little bit about the food system and diet and their uh, contribution to this epidemic of, of obesity and chronic disease that is now literally crippling our, you know, our healthcare system or our sick care system, depending on what you want to call it, not just here in the U.S., but now worldwide. And is going to lead to you know fifty trillion dollars of expenditure to treat chronic disease just in in the next uh, twenty years, and possibly bring down governments and economies all around the world. So it yeah, all starts it, with food. It's completely true, and I think if we look at some of the new data, you used to think I was smoking or whatever, but it turns out that according to the Global Burden of Disease Study of one hundred ninety five countries, that lack of good foods and too much bad foods. Uh, kills over 11 million people a year. I think that's an underestimate, actually, when you start to look at the other 
chronic diseases that are, are causing people to die and you add them all up and you see what are caused by food like diabetes and heart disease and other things, it's probably upward of 40 or 50 million people a year, probably three quarters of all deaths on the planet are contributed to or caused by our food, our ultra processed food. Um, and the ultra processed food we're eating is 60% of our calories. It's corn, wheat, and soy turned into all kinds of factory made science projects. And for every 10% of your diet that comes from processed food, your risk of death goes up by 14%. And the side effect of that is a huge economic burden. You mentioned you know, 50 trillion, but looking at how you slice and dice it, uh, according to uh, macroeconomic analysis, the, the cost uh, uh, to our society in both direct and indirect costs is going to be $95 trillion over the next 35 years. Just to put in perspective, that's uh, an annual amount that's 91% of the total tax collected by the U.S. government. So our, that's about over like... Much more than the GDP of the six largest economies of the world. And, and yes, and also uh, it's probably more, that amount is more than the total economy of the world when you add yeah. up. It's going to be over 35 years, but... Yeah. Uh, you know, just things like Medicare trust fund is going to run out of money in five years. By 2025, 48% of our mandatory federal spending will be for Medicare, which means there's like half of the money left for everything else we need. And it's right. completely unsustainable. And we know that the, the food that we're eating uh, is, is so nutrient depleted that it is so inflammatory. It's so toxic to our microbiome. It's so toxic to our brain chemistry. Uh, it's so inflammatory that it's driving all these other issues, which isn't just obesity, diabetes, and heart disease. It's affecting our kids' academic performance. You know, we're 31st in the world in math and reading, and our kids are struggling with ADD and behavior issues. Uh, the, the data on that is striking. The data on violence, who thought violence is connected to food, but in violent prisoners in prison, giving them a healthy diet, reduced violent crime, by 56%, and if they added a multivitamin, it reduced it by 80%. And the same thing with kids in juvenile detention centers, bad behaviors reduced by 91%, uh, the use of restraints by 75%, oppositional behavior dramatically lower, suicide, 100% drop in suicide in these kids in this one large study of 3,000 kids where they swapped out healthy food for the bad food in these centers. Yeah. So there's a huge impact on our intellectual capital, on our emotional capital, on the divisiveness in our society. I mean, we, we think of why is our society so divided and why are we having so much conflict in politics and even the nutrition diet wars is, I think, an example. And I right. think it's I a think total that, distraction from what we really need to be focused on. Totally. And, and part of the problem, I, I just had David uh, Perlmutter on my podcast, he was talking about the the effects of inflammation on the brain in decoupling the limbic system from the frontal lobe. And what that means is you have a fight or flight reptile brain, your lizard brain, which is the old brain that's in, yep. in, in not, not great at making good decisions except saving your life, mm -hmm. uh, and your frontal lobe, which is the adult in the room. So if you have an emotional reaction or response and you get activated, you can't really control it, which is why there's so much uh, divisive behavior, why our decisions are so poor. And I, it was sort of a striking, another striking fact from uh, David Perlmutter and his, and his son wrote this book, Brainwash, about how our food is driving, you know, behavioral issues and emotional conflict. And Keeping us stuck in our, our limbic system and the amygdala running the show rather than our frontal cortex. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk a little more about kids, because this is something we're both passionate about, um, how the food industry preys on children 
specifically. You know, it's it it preys on everybody, but it the the effects are especially insidious with yeah. kids. So you know, let's talk a little bit about those tactics and how we can address that. Uh, you know, starting with young kids in schools and cafeterias and the food that they're served. It's so huge. Uh, you know, obviously kids are sicker and better than ever. I mean, remember there was that one overweight kid in your class growing up, one kid was a behavioral issue. Now it's, you know, one in 10 kids have ADD and 40% are overweight. Um, and, and the obesity rates have tripled since the 1970s. And now one in three kids is overweight or obese. I mean, that's pretty striking. Uh, and, and one in four teenagers has type two diabetes or prediabetes, which is really crazy. Scary. I never saw that when I was, so when I was growing up. And, and yeah. you see the fast food infiltrating the schools in dramatic ways. One, uh, you know, one school I saw, this is like 50% of schools, they have fast food served in the cafeteria, like McDonald's Monday, Taco Bell Tuesday, Wendy's Wednesday. Uh, and these are what kids get to eat. And there's uh, there's incredible uh, abundance of these processed foods and then marketing to these kids through schools, uh, all the advertising that goes in from the soda companies, and the big food companies that is driving their behaviors uh, and their choices. I mean, they now have, you know, Coca-Cola ads in the, in the locker rooms and the toilet stalls and the bathroom. Um, so there's a lot of good, good things that have happened. For example, trying to solve that with the healthy hunger free kids act that Michelle Obama championed. And she tried to, to mandate the 100,000 public schools provide healthier foods and, and it improved the nutrition standards, but it, it didn't really go far enough, right? You still, you still can get all kinds of junk food in there. And now, unfortunately, the, 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 the Trump administration has rolled back a lot of those guidelines saying the kids aren't eating the food, they're throwing it out. I mean, there were, there were 111 food companies, trade groups, industry organizations that lobbied on this bill when it was put into play. Uh, there's a group called the School Nutrition Association, which sounds really nice. Yeah, but they, all, all the groups have those kinds of misleading names, right? right. It's like an industry-funded uh, lobby group, and, and their $10 million budget comes from big food companies like Coke and Kraft and Domino's Pizza. I mean, and they water down the guidelines. Pizza's a vegetable. French fries are a vegetable, right? <laughs> uh, ketchup yeah. is a vegetable. <laughs> right. And it's pretty terrible. Kids are really suffering, and it affects not only their weight and their long-term health, but also their cognitive function. Their uh, mood and their, their behavior, like you said yeah, before. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and now and now the, the things that are okay under the guidelines are things like pepperoni pizza from Uno, chicken nuggets, funnel cakes, chocolate muffins, sugar-soaked slush puppy beverages. Those are all approved under the current guidelines, which doesn't make any sense. Just but insane. the good news is people are, are really trying to shift this. A friend of mine, Jill Shaw, and I write about in the book, uh, created something called the My Way Cafe, where she found uh, out how to refurbish kitchens, kitchens and schools at a low cost because only had deep fryers and microwaves. She hired top chefs in Boston in these Boston inner city schools to create delicious foods that were within the school nutrition guidelines and even more importantly, within the school nutrition budget. Yeah. Which means that they could provide the same food at no extra cost. I mean, better food at no extra cost. And these kids are performing better in school. Their behavior is better. They're uh, having less issues. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. That sounds great. Yeah, grassroots solutions like this, I think, can go such a long way because they prove out the model. And then that model can be scaled up um, and you know, exported, not just here in the U.S., but, but elsewhere. Yeah, and, and, and they're not the only ones. There's, you know, there's really great groups that are trying to solve this in schools, uh, conscious I think Conscious Kitchens is one of them. Uh, and, and there's really great groups that are working on this. 
So I feel like uh, there's so much to be done. The other, the other issue though is, is the food marketing. And this is really a problem because the, there's, it used to be um, you know, just in, in the obvious places, right? On TV, in print, you know, and so forth. And now it's stealth marketing. And the, the Institute of Medicine produced a report even before the internet saying how bad it was. And now mm-hmm. it's 10 times worse. And, and they're, they're hijacking kids' amygdala brains or using all kinds of emotional targeting. And they're really driving huge amounts of marketing towards, towards these kids. I mean, 2016, 56 of the biggest food companies placed 509 million banner ads and impressions on Cartoon Network, wow. Nick, Nick.com. They placed 3.4 billion ads on Facebook and YouTube. I mean... And the WHO is like, hey, this is not okay. Uh, they're using powerful digital marketing tactics that it doesn't even come up as advertising. It's, it's sort of like advert games that are fun games they give kids for free uh, that drive them to McDonald's. Uh, and it's, uh, it's these are they're looking at kids' brains with imaging so they can actually see what lights up their their pleasure center in their brain. Brain uh, hacking. Yeah, I mean it's scary. I mean it's not just like oh oh we don't really know what we're doing. We just they yeah. we just put these ads on. No, they they know what they're intentionally doing. Intentionally manipulative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we got to protect our kids. I mean, a friend of mine said, you know, if uh, a foreign country was doing to our kids what we're doing, we would go to We'd war. We'd be at war, absolutely, without yeah. a doubt, without a doubt. Let's talk a little bit about the role of regulation. This is a controversial issue, of course. People politically, people have a you know, ideas about how much the the state, whether we're talking about, you know, actual U.S. states or or federal government should get involved. Let's talk a little bit about soda tax as an example and the effects that that has had, where that's been done, and then other uh, things that governments uh, both here domestically and abroad might do to intervene and whether you even think that's a good idea. Well, I think, you know, there's a whole issue of the nanny state. And I think, uh, you know, people are, are opposed to that and the government getting involved in their choices. But it's important to remember that we do have laws that protect citizens. For example, we have seatbelt laws. We have emissions for cars. The car manufacturer all up in arms and now emissions are, are a thing people accept. We mandate yeah. baby seats. We mandate vaccinations, which may, may or not like think is a good idea. But, but we do have uh, efforts in our country to protect our citizens. We used I to think- prevent industry from polluting. Our water right. source and and air 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 that we breathe, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, I think there's there's really uh, great evidence around how to use fiscal policies to drive change, and I think there's been enough soda taxes that have been in place where they're effective, uh, and, and and we can sort of argue whether they're politically good or not. But you know they work. This is why the food industry, the American beverage industry, spent 38 million dollars trying to defeat them in California. And thank God that Michael Bloomberg and Arnold Foundation spent about $20 million of their own money to, to, mm-hmm. to actually allow them to pass. I mean, that's what it takes, right? A couple of billionaires saying, hey, wait a minute, we're going to fight back. But when you look at the, the data, they, they really do work. There's a reduction in soda consumption, there's an improvement in health, there's a reduction in weight, uh, and, and it, actually, it actually works. Uh, and, and that's why they fight it. Now, the problem is that the food industry fights back. So I'm not sure you're aware of this, Chris, but... In California, there was four states that, four, uh, sorry, four towns that, that passed soda tax in the 2016 election. And, and that was only because of Bloomberg and Arnold Foundation. Mm-hmm. However, right after that, the food industry decided a new tactic. And this has nothing to do with 
with, with, with soda or anything. They just created a ballot measure that would prohibit local governments from passing new taxes to pay for schools, fire department, police station, whatever, without a two-third majority, which would be very impossible and would cripple local governments in California. They spent $7 million promoting this ballot initiative, which they couldn't care less about, but they, but they used it to bribe Jerry Brown, who was probably the most liberal governor we've ever had in America, to pass a preemptive law that prevented any future soda taxes or junk food taxes. So it's, and they did it at the last minute. They said, we'll pull it, we'll pull the ballot measure, you know, if you pass this. And they did it five days before the election. And they just went through without any, any kind of like awareness until after. And they're doing this in state after state after state. So they're, they're fighting back and they're using big tobaccos. um, Playbook. Playbook. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, you know, we see in places like Mexico where they've had taxes for a while, they work, uh, soft drink sales plunged. While water uh, water consumption increased, uh, we see the same thing in in Philadelphia, where where we've seen similar uh, taxes, and Berkeley. So there's been a lot of analysis of that, and uh, you know, according to according to um, PLOS Medicine, which is a research journal, that if over the course of a decade this tax in Mexico would save 19,000 lives, prevent 200,000 new cases of diabetes, and lower Mexico's healthcare costs almost a billion dollars. So <laughs> It works. Wow. Yeah, I think I think the biggest, I mean, I'm with you on this, Mark, but I do have mixed feelings because the biggest risk with this, it's pretty clear. Everybody agrees that there should be a soda tax, but what about a saturated fat tax? You know, what about, you know, when government starts making decisions, which, which was actually proposed, I don't know if it ever happened in Norway, um, but you can sometimes get you know, the idea of taxes based on consensus paradigm science, which as we know, isn't always accurate and can change over time. So I think overall, I agree with that approach, but I I am a little nervous about the direction that that could go in. Yeah, it's true. I mean, like, you know, I mean, in the book, I talk about how Chile put in sweeping reforms, which I think are being really looked at carefully and scientifically, but have had dramatic impact. And, and they did a whole sweeping set of things, an 18% soda tax. They put warning labels on the front of boxes. They got rid of cartoon characters like Tony the Tiger. But their, but their warning boxes are saturated fat, salt, and sugar, which may not be the right approach, right? Because then the food company can dial up and down these ingredients. But it's still, it's still a step forward. But it, 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 you're right. There is, there is danger in it. But what they did also was eliminate any marketing to kids between like 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. on any, any place in you know, yeah. internet, TV, print, everywhere. And and they found there was a fourfold reduction compared to the taxes uh, of junk food and processed food by eliminating the advertising. So the marketing is a bigger factor and a bigger lever than taxes. The problem in this country is something called the First Amendment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which, which is being used by these companies to actually argue that they have a right to do that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. an impingement on free speech and yeah. that it shouldn't be limited. And I think, you know, I don't know if there's anything in the First Amendment that says we can't protect our children. I just don't know that. Right. Yeah, it, we're living in a much more complex environment now than when those, you know, the Constitution was written. And I'm not arguing that um, those principles aren't still valid, but I think there's a lot of nuance now that there, there wasn't, that didn't necessarily exist at that point. 
Let's talk about the other side of this uh, in terms of government programs. Uh, they can have great benefit, but they can also be problematic and contribute to the problem. And one example of that is, is the food stamp program. So let's, let's talk a little bit about some of the issues that that, that is, is causing. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think, you know, no, a lot of the problems we have today, uh, you know, I've come to really realize we're not uh, the result of bad intentions, right? So our current agricultural system, our food stamp program, uh, dietary guidelines, they were all, all coming from uh, good intentions. And we decided we need to grow more food, grow more calories, grow more starchy calories, and all that's great. We need to feed people. And so the focus was on giving people adequate amount of calories, but not concerned about where those calories came from. And it turned out that most of the calories we produced through all the government supports were processed food calories that are essentially soy, wheat, and corn turned into all kinds of manner of industrial food products. And the food stamp program uh, serves about 46 million Americans, one in four kids. It's a really great support for these people who are struggling just with food insecurity. So it's really helped solve food insecurity. But the dark side of it is that it, it is driving these people to be more sick and have more chronic disease because the majority of calories purchased, 75% are junk food and 10% is soda, and that's about seven billion a year. That's about thirty billion servings for the poor every year. So there's the problem with, with now the program is called SNAP or Supplemental Nutrition Assistance. The problem is there's no nutrition in the assistance. It's all right. <laughs> malnutrition, and I think there's a large effort to try to put nutrition back in the food stamp program. Uh, and I, I think that's where there's incentives, for example, for purchasing healthier food with double bucks at farmers markets. Disincentives could be in place for bad food. And I think there's ways to do it that are politically palatable. The challenge is, you know, I just have morally have a problem with the government paying for that many servings of soda for the poor when we know it's yeah. a contributor disease. Yeah. And, and, and Coca-Cola is the biggest welfare recipient in America with 20% of their American revenue coming from food stamps. Walmart is about, you know, probably 20% of all the food stamp dollars go to Walmart. Now, they may be buying organic vegetables. I don't know. But my guess is they're probably not. And, yeah. and I think uh, it's probably one of the biggest government programs. It's the biggest component of the farm bill. So it really shouldn't be called a farm bill. It should be called a food bill. And yeah. it's uh, it's about $735 billion over 10 years. Uh, and and it, there's a huge fights on trying to improve the, the SNAP bill. And, and in the book, I detailed how a lot of the congressmen and senators are bought and paid for by the food industry and are you know saying, well, it's all about exercise. You know, It's not really about not really about uh, sugar or other foods. It's really about the, <laughs> the exercise. Which is ridiculous and totally contrary to what the research says. I have a personal story about this. When I was uh, back in school and I was interning in a, a clinic with, with a lot, you know, large underserved population, uh, primarily Latino, and uh, we had kids who were coming into our into the clinic. I mean, this was uh, oh. 15 years ago, and it was already a big problem with childhood obesity uh, in that community. And many of the the families were on food stamps, and they were they the foods that they could buy. You know, one of the 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 foods that uh, you know I would ask often what they were giving their kids, and uh, often these kids were drinking like a liter of orange juice a day, and you know, I would talk to the moms about it and they would say, well, this is, yeah, I was told this was healthy. You know, orange, orange is a fruit and, or, you know, fruit juice is healthy. It says right here. And they would show me the literature that they 
God about, you know, healthy food choices. So oftentimes people are trying to do the right thing, but they're not um, getting the right guidance or support in the choices that they're making. You're hundred percent right. I mean, I was part of that movie fed up and I went down to this family in North Carolina, South Carolina, and they were, you know, struggling to lose weight. The father couldn't get a new kidney unless he was able to actually uh, lose 45 pounds. They were crying because they were trying to do the right thing and didn't really know how. And, and I went to their kitchen and they were, you know, having cool whip because it said zero trans fats on it. It was a healthy right. topping or their salad dressings were full of refined soybean oil and high fructose corn syrup. And they thought that was a good dressing. And they, it was one thing after the other and they were trying to do the right thing. They just didn't know. And I simply went through their kitchen, took everything out of their cupboards, showed them what the ingredients were, why they were a problem. And they got it. And I said, well, here's how you cook a simple meal from scratch using real ingredients, which they'd never done. Right. <laughs> and they would learn how right. to do it. And, yeah. and they were able to do it. I gave, gave them a cookbook and a, and a guide to eating well for less. And they were able to lose 200 pounds as a family uh, over a year. The son ended up going on to lose 138 pounds and go in, and now is in medical school. And I wrote Amazing. a book for, for medical school. I mean, that, that, you know, that just, it's not that hard. And they were living on food stamps and disability in one of the worst food deserts in America. And they were able to figure it out. And so if they can figure it out, like, I think it's, it's possible for all of us. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk um, more about the food system itself. I mean, we one of the biggest issues, of course, is we have this massively industrialized food system where processed and refined food comprise 60% of the cal- you know, calories that Americans consume. And, you know, one of, one of the most common solutions that we often hear is that we should, you know, further industrialize the food system. Uh, there was an article in The Guardian recent, not too long ago, by George Monbiot that really proposed lab-grown food as the the solution to to our uh, food system woes. What do you think about that? And and if that's not the solution, what what is? Well, I, I'm I'm all for innovation, and I think they're great great, great tech solutions. But actually, I met with Uma Valetti, who's the founder of Memphis Meats, which is growing lab-grown meat. And we were talking about the entire sort of life cycle analysis of the process. And I'm like, well, you know, it's a very energy-intensive process. It also uses Farm materials, basically feed grain and other sources of feed often GMO monocrops that come from industrial agriculture. I said, you know, yeah. Uma, you could literally transform this industry by getting regenerative uh, ag crops and supporting those, just like General Mills is doing, and now even I think Kellogg's is encouraging, and Danone and Nestle. And two, you could use renewable source of energy to fuel your farm. I mean, to fuel your plant. I, I, I an example of this is kind of cool. You know, food waste we haven't talked about, but it's a huge problem. And in Massachusetts, they eliminated the ability of any companies that make a ton of food waste or more a week to throw it out. And farmers, dairy farmers are struggling to make a living uh, and, and it was, you know, really hard. And, and so they basically came up with this model where they built these anaerobic digesters on their farms and they get, you know, three tractor trailers full, full of food waste every day and they throw it in there and they throw some cow poop in there and it basically creates electricity for 1500 homes. It makes the, the farmer hundred grand a year, which is a lot because they, on average, farmers lose about $1,600 a year. It ends the food waste issue. It, it helps deal with the manure problem. It's like a win, win, win. So there's a lot of great innovations around, around things where they could, for example, power uh, you know, lab meat based on that, for example. So I think, I think I'm not against it, but I just think, you know, it's probably not the solution. And what turns out, and, and this is really exciting, is, is that, you know, we didn't talk about it yet, but the food industry as a whole 
and this was a shock to me, is the number one cause of climate change. It's also the yeah. number one solution. Yeah. Uh, and, and the things that are driving it are deforestation, soil erosion, factory farming of animals, food waste, all the transport refrigeration, processing, packaging of food. When you add it all up, it's basically 48 to 50 something percent of our climate problem, which is bigger than fossil fuels. So we have to really think about a different way of farming that reverses climate change. And the good news is that way of farming called regenerative agriculture, which is a very specific way of building soil, conserving water, less chemicals, more biodiversity, pollinators, et cetera, produces more food, better food, more profitable for the farmer while building soil, reversing climate change, creating resiliency to drought and floods and, and, and weather extremes and makes the farmer a lot more money. Yeah. It's like a win-win-win. You know, and creating well, great livelihood for people. I mean, I, my, my listeners will be familiar. We just had Will, Will Harris um, from White Oak Pastures, who you probably are familiar oh, yeah, with yeah, and, yeah. Uh, on the show. And he talked about, you know, like they, uh, the, the independent analysis by Qantas International found that they sequester three and a half pounds of carbon per pound of beef produced, um, whereas Impossible Burger, which is a, you know, a lab produced meat, a fake a fake meat uh, is emitting three and a half pounds of carbon per pound of beef. So it's, it's, you know, impossible burgers, certainly far less, uh, you know, it emits far less carbon than conventional beef, which is uh, 33 in that comparison. But it's amazing that regenerative agriculture is actually a net carbon sink and is, is more uh, environmentally responsible way of, of feeding people than fake meat and probably lab meat, although we that we don't have a, uh, an existing analysis on lab meat yet. Yeah, that's 100% right. I think, you know, people say you can't feed the world, it's not scalable. But, you know, if you look at all the degraded land uh, we have in the world that needs to be yeah. restored, we can. In fact, the UN recently said that we could stall climate change by 20 years, simply by taking two of the 5 million hectares of degraded land around the world, and spending $300 billion, which is just about the military spend of the entire world for 60 days, that we could, we, we could convert two of the 5 million hectares of degraded land back to regenerative ag, and that would stall climate change by 20 years. That, to me, is staggering. I mean, this is in my opinion. These are the yeah. top scientists. And, and, and give us food security, because without soil, healthy soil we have no food security we don't currently really know how to produce food without soil and none of the technological or lab solutions that are being proposed do anything to address the decline in soil quality that is really again one of the most serious threats that i think humanity is facing right now and not one that's very well understood so yeah it was shocking to me when i started reading about this the un says we have 60 harvests left you know the obama administration produced a report on soil they said 80 years left but we, we basically are running out of soil because we're turning it into dirt, which can't grow food. And, and we are going to be screwed. And it's probably a more rapid and existential threat than anything else, <laughs> even climate change. I mean, it's cause of climate change. I think people, I don't think people realize this, and I certainly didn't, that 30 to 40% of all of the carbon in the atmosphere, about 1 trillion tons of carbon, 30 to 40% of it is from the loss of our topsoil over the last 150 years, which is because of the way we farm. And that to me was a shock because if that's true, then the converse is true that we can put the carbon back in the soil using an incredible carbon tech, carbon capture technology that's available everywhere in the world, it's free, 
been around for billions of years. It's called photosynthesis. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, and absolutely. It's like, I mean, it, it's a solution is not to eliminate farming. It's to it's to return farming to its roots, really, and and practice a, a way of farming that, as you said, can restore so soil quality and ecosystems and reduce the uh, release of chemicals into the food system, which I want to come back to, and into the environment and provide, you know, meaningful livelihood for people who are doing it. Yeah, it's it's really uh, notable to me that it, in the same way that you're talking about, you know, fixing the food system, it doesn't just address our diet and nu nu nutrition quality. It, it addresses so many of these social, economic, and environmental problems. Let's talk okay. a little bit about chemicals. So, because we haven't touched that much on that yet. We've got chemicals in our crops and in, in our food system. We've got industrial agriculture uh, massively, um, you know, contributing to this. We've got genetically modified plants, pesticides, toxins leaching into the ground, contaminating aquifers, rivers, and streams, and tainting the food supply. What are the impacts on this? Uh, I know you did a ton of this. I know you did a lot of research on that. And how can we address this? And there's a lot of issues. There's obviously, the health risks of things like pesticides. You know, farmers' risk of Parkinson's is 70% higher than the average population. Uh, you know, we're seeing pesticides being linked to cancer, type 2 diabetes, neurodegenerative diseases, developmental disorders. Uh, some studies show that in kids, you know, this, you know you, 41 million IQ points have been lost to kids exposed to pesticides. Uh, these are real issues. And then, of course, got the glyphosate. This is the most abundant chemical that's used in agriculture, essentially it's herbicides that are used on, on so many different plants. And, and uh, it was, you know, it's been banned in many countries. Uh, here we just said the EPA said it was safe to use, unfortunately. Um, uh, but there's been billion dollar lawsuits that have been won because of its link to cancer. It also causes destruction of the microbiome. And, I mean, the Impossible Burger has 110 times as much glyphosate as required to destroy the microbiome of the animal in animal like rats and animal studies. And so we're, we're dealing with these, these horrible consequences on, on uh, people. Uh, you know, when you, you look at the Chamaco study with Hispanic workers in Salinas Valley, which is our big agricultural hub, they're 59% more likely to get leukemia, 70% more likely to get stomach cancer, 63% more likely to get cervical cancer. Uh, they have 40% more you know, phosphate pesticides in their urine, including pregnant and breastfeeding women. I mean, it, it's a mess. But I, I want to talk about fertilizer because I, you know, this was again news for me as I began to research this. You know, fertilizer, how bad is that? It's just a little nitrogen. What's the big deal? You know, but it turns out that the fertilizer is produced. It's 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 a massive industry, and it's produced using a very energy-intensive process. And the number one users of natural gas from fracking are the fertilizer companies, and the Fracking wells produce 30 to 40% more methane than conventional oil wells, which is adding more to climate change. Then when you put it on the soil, it turns to nitrous oxide, which is 300 times more potent to greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. And then it destroys the life of the soil. So the microbiology, which is required to extract nutrients, it's required to build carbon, all these wonderful things that the soil does, it sort of kills it, along with the herbicides and pesticides. And then the runoff of the fertilizer into our waterways, rivers, lakes, streams, and oceans cause these algal blooms, sucks all the oxygen out of the water, ends up causing massive dead zones. And for example, in the Gulf of Mexico, there's one the size of New Jersey, which kills 212,000 metric tons of fish. I mean, who's paying for that, right? And then there's yeah. 400 of these around the world, the size of Europe, which a half a billion people depend on for food. So 
like, how do we even start to think about that? And the good news with regenerative agriculture, you don't need fertilizer. You have animals making the fertilizer. You have plants making the fertilizer and you actually make money from your fertilizer instead of costing money. So I think, I think we, we have to sort of come to terms with this chemical industrial agriculture uh, from a number of points of view. One is the human health consequences, the environmental consequences, the effect of these pesticides on our pollinators. I mean, we've lost 75% of our pollinators. That's terrible. Without pollinators, just like without soil, we can't grow many of our crops. Uh, and so we have we can't like we can't keep going this way. And I I feel like this is why it's such an imperative. Why I wrote this book. Why it's such a departure for me. I think it's it's really a different kind of book for me. It's a political book. It's a, it's about how do we take action to solve these problems. And, and I'm working with an incredible team to actually create a whole campaign around this. And one of them is you know a Republican strategist. And I'm I'm a Democrat, and so I'm like pretty clear about some of my views on the book. But I, I I was struck why is he why is this guy who's who's spent his whole life you know working on certain types of policies why would he take the time to come up and meet and be part of this initiative and I said I said why he said, well, I read the book and it, it yeah. just really made it clear to me that this is the central issue of our time and we have to solve it and I think this is one of the most important books of the last decade and I I just you know I feel like I, I need to be part of this and I was like wow and he's like volunteering his time and. You know, it's it's pretty it's pretty impressive Good for him. I mean, it's so clear that this issue crosses political lines. I mean, m- maybe the proposed solutions might vary a little bit depending on one's politics. For example, you know, the role of government regulation, things like soda taxes. But I think it's virtually impossible to uh, disagree, whatever your political inclination is, that this is one of the biggest challenges we face, and it's urgent that we address it. So. Yeah, tell us a little more about the campaign and, and how that's going to complement the book. Well, I mean, I wrote the book uh, because I felt like it was an imperative to tell the story. And that was the first step. But what was really exciting to me is a number of people reached out to me to want to do something big, bigger. And one of the guys was a guy who helped Bono launch his incredible uh, one campaign that raised $87 billion for AIDS and poverty relief in Africa through Congress in a bipartisan way. And he really knows how to run stuff in Washington. And he's put together a whole team where we've, we've got a policy group, a grassroots movement group, a business, you know, C-suite group for partnerships. I mean, it's really, really exciting. And I think that there's, there's such a, a deep understanding of these issues in this group. We've got incredible champions that are coming together to create this. We've got donors, we have celebrities. We have policymakers on board. So I feel like this is a really crucial moment where we can actually make this happen. And, and it's not, you know, it's, whether whether current administration stays or not, I think there's ways of getting things done in Washington that are a little below the radar. And, and I think this is how we're going to work and be deliberate and strategic. And, you know, I'm, I'm so excited about doing this. Um, it's called the Food Fix Campaign. And, and you can learn about it uh, on our website, foodfixbook.com or foodfix.org with the sites coming up probably next month or so. So I think it's really an exciting effort because I, I, I feel like I, I, I'm worried about my children and their children. And, you know, what does the future look like for all of us? And connecting the dots has been my life's work. And, and I began to think about connecting the dots, not just about food and health and functional medicine, but connecting the dots that affect all these issues and that, that are really an imperative for us to solve. Well, I'm so glad that you... You wrote this book, Mark. I know it it is a bit of a departure for you, but I I really feel like I I agree 100% with what others have said. It's going to, it's for sure one of the most important books of the decade, if not the century. Um, You know, I I really believe that this 
is on the same scale as climate change and some of the other existential threats that, that, that we're facing and threatens humanity in a similar way. So, uh, and I firmly believe, as you know, and we've discussed that we won't be able to address this just by supporting individuals to make better choices because individuals are part of a system. <laughs> They're part of this really complex web of influences um, that are often unconscious and very, very difficult to um, avoid entirely because our, our kind of basic brain programming is working against us in that way. So I think change, I'm not, you know, ab abdicating personal responsibility here. We all definitely have personal responsibility, but I think we, we really have to move beyond that. And I know that was kind of the key insight for you, you know, recognizing this after doing what you've done for some, you know, for three decades, that this is more, this goes beyond individual choice. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's such a bigger thing and we all can be part of it. And I think, you know, we often feel discouraged and frustrated uh, by the state of things that we're in, you know, we don't have the power to change things, but we do. I mean, just look at what happened last few weeks with glyphosate, you know, Kellogg's, which, you know, in their Cheerios, they were outed for having more glyphosate than vitamin A or vitamin D. They announced that they're going to phase out all glyphosate from their products by 2025, which is fantastic, which means it's going to change the supply chain. It's going to change how farming is done. General Mills, same thing. They uh, they committed to a million acres of regenerative ag, Nestle, Danone, all these big companies uh, are really focused on this issue uh, and, and, and are acting on it because consumers, people like you listening, are making different choices, demanding different things and asking for different products. Uh, and I, I, I see this happening. And I was very skeptical about any movement in the food industry, but it's possible. And there's other levers. There's people using financial levers, for example, investment levers, where uh, this one guy, Jeremy Kohler, I talked about in the book. Uh, he he essentially decided to gather 12 trillion assets. He's a, he's a venture, uh, a private equity guy, and he and he basically got a 12 trillion dollars in institutional assets and told these companies to get together to get all the big fast food companies to get antibiotics out of their feed and their supply chain by a certain date. And if not, they were going to divest those companies. So, for example, if there's big investors in McDonald's, they're going to you know sell all their shares. It's not going to be good. So they, they basically all agreed. They got 20 companies, the top 20 companies to get antibiotics out of their feed. So there's a lot of hope, in I think, in this, in this space. And I think there's a lot of possibility. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. Absolutely. I am as well. So I think a lot of people listening will want to get involved and, and be a part of the solution. So where can they uh, learn more about the book and pick up a copy? And, and if people want to get involved in the, this larger campaign, is there a way to do that yet? Yes, for sure. So foodfixbook.org, I'm sorry, foodfixbook.com is uh, the main website and there'll be a link on there for the Food Fix campaign. That's probably the easiest way to get it. We're still launching it. It's going to, official launch date is going to be May 2020, but uh, it's it's pretty exciting. We've got a 45 page strategy document. We've got incredible networks we put together of business leaders and scientists and policymakers. And it's just really pretty, it's pretty exciting. So I'm, I'm very, very happy that um, you have me on your podcast. I think it's really important to tell this story. And I think we're, you know, we're just in this moment in time where it's like, I think the perfect moment for this all to sort of happen. Absolutely, Mark. And I just have so much gratitude and appreciation for you and uh, having the courage and willingness to write this book and, you know, get this message out there because I, I really believe it's one of the most important of our time. So thank you. 
Thank you. Okay, everybody. Thanks for listening. Keep sending your questions in to chriscresser.com slash podcast question, and we'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.